kingdom build. We want to build well. And so we've been looking at uh, a number of things. First, we looked at being watchful in Revelation 3 to the church in Sardis. Uh, Jesus' words to them was, wake up, be watchful. Watchful against what? Watchful against drift from the gospel. Let us not drift from the gospel. We must be watchful. And then the week after that, we talked about how we need to fight the flesh by walking in the spirit and bearing spiritual fruit. And then we talked about perseverance under pressure, to persevere in faith, hope, and love. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And last week, we looked at Jesus' prayer for unity for his followers and, and saw how it is our, it's our ability to reach our community will always be directly tied to, to the measure of our unity, God working uh, in our body for unity. And that's a testimony to the watching world. This morning, we are going to look at Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And let me just say, uh, we're not, you know, a liturgical church. We don't pay uh, very close attention to the church calendar. But I, I realized yesterday that today is Pentecost Sunday on the church calendar. Pentecost, penta meaning 50, and it's 50 days following Easter is when this is celebrated. And of course, it remembers uh, that event in Acts chapter 2 where uh, God poured out the Holy Spirit on his church. And I'm preaching from 1 Corinthians 12 on spiritual gifts today, and that, that was not on purpose. That's God. So God is good, isn't he? God is good. So this first letter to the church in Corinth, one thing you, you always need to keep in mind when reading a New Testament letter is that when we read it, we're reading someone else's mail. We're reading someone else's mail. This is a letter written to a church. Often New Testament letters are referred to as occasional documents, meaning that the letter was written in response to a particular occasion. There was something going on, and it's like you're listening to one end of a telephone conversation and trying to figure out and piece together, okay, what's really going on here? Many times this occasion is a problem that needs to be addressed. And this is certainly the case in Paul's Corinthian letters. For example, in this letter, six times Paul begins uh, to make a point by, by using this phrase, now concerning, now concerning. Each time this phrase is used, it's a clue that Paul is responding to something that the Corinthians have either written to Paul about or that Paul has learned about them through some other means. And we see this really clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, where Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So we know that there was a letter written to Paul from the Corinthian church that we don't have. It was lost to us in history. God didn't intend for us to have that. Uh, but we have Paul's reply to go from. Our text this morning begins with these same words. And Paul will proceed to address a matter of dysfunction in the Corinthian church over uh, the abuse of spiritual gifts. 
And so this morning we're going to look at three things from our text. First, what was the problem? Two, what was the correction? And three, what's the purpose? What's the purpose? And we're going to land on the answer to this question. How is it that God shows himself to the world today? So that's where we're going. We're going to read now 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. If you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand with me in reverence for God's word. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers... I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And to another, the working of miracles to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the richness of it. Thank you that you speak today. You are the living God and your, your word is living and active and you speak to us through your word. So Father, help us Uh, more than ever, to have ears to hear and hearts to receive with joy your word for us this morning. God, change us. Make us more like Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So first, let's talk about the problem. The problem is, is not stated explicitly. Remember, we're reading someone else's mail here. So the problem Paul addresses can be reconstructed in a backwards fashion by identifying the reverse side of the arguments that Paul's making. So when we consider the the broader context of the letter, and especially chapters 12 to 14, we can see that in light of their various spirit-empowered abilities, some of these Christians were becoming prideful and thinking more highly of themselves than they should. And this overvaluing led to the marginalization of of those believed to have lesser abilities. And these undervalued believers were tempted to to sit out. They were made to think that uh, they didn't have as much to offer. 
This church was divided along these lines, the overvalued and the undervalued, based on what kinds of spiritual abilities they had. Now, here's the thing. Our fallen nature loves to search for anything that's unique about us and that sets us apart, and it loves to latch onto it, whether it's, you know, I'm smarter, or I think I'm smarter. Uh, I'm, I'm more athletic, or I'm, I'm prettier, or I'm a more moral person. And when our human nature discovers what it is that's really unique about us, it becomes a source of pride. We, we think less of others. We look down on others to make ourselves look better in our own eyes. Or we may not think that there's anything particularly unique about us, about ourselves, and we conclude that we don't have much to offer. And this is how the Corinthian believers viewed their spiritual abilities. Their, their flesh has latched on to this and, and, and uh, made them prideful. For some, it was like discovering a Marvel superhero power, you know, I've spidey sense or something, right? And they're like, wow, this is cool, you know. Uh, I must be really important, you know. God must be really happy with me, you know. He gave me this cool ability. Uh, And the more spectacular the ability, the more unique and the more valuable they were. And the ability that seemed to be elevated uh, among the others in, in this church was the ability to speak in different kinds of tongues, we're not going to get into exactly what that gift means because it would really be a distraction from the main idea this morning. So for now, all I want you to see is that their fallen nature has latched onto these spiritual abilities and has turned them in on themselves and has divided them from one another. So for us today, it's, it's probably not speaking in tongues, but it's something else. It's an ability, a talent a ministry position maybe. And your flesh it can latch on to this something that's unique about you and tempt you to be prideful. Or it can neutralize you because you sit here and you wonder and you think to yourself, I can't play the guitar like Brett Valentine. So why bother? Or I can't pray as eloquently as some of the elders. So I'm just going to be quiet. Or I, I can't cook like Kenny Jernigan, so I'm going to sit this one out. Or I can't sing like Vicky or Josie, uh, so I'm going to sit this one out. I'm not going to try. Um, or fill in the blank. Whatever it, whatever it is that, that you can think of, that your heart just kind of, uh, you, you can feel it, right? There, there's an envy or a jealousy maybe even, or... Uh, just a, a feeling of despair. Like, I just, I don't have much to offer. And pride and despair really are two sides of the same coin of self-reliance. You look at yourself and you think, yeah. Or you look at yourself and you're like, oh, you know, I can't do that. So what's the correction? This is point two. Look at verse one to see how Paul addresses this right out of the gate. Paul's words here I think, may have been received as somewhat of a slap in the face to these puffed up, prideful people regarding their spiritual abilities. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, 
I can imagine the Corinthians, some of them in the Corinthian church thinking, uninformed? Does he know who we are? You know, does he know what we're capable of? So Paul's tactic here is, is to educate them, to correct their thinking. And so for Paul and for the Corinthian church and for us, school is in session. He lays the foundation for this corrective in verse 2 by reminding them of who they once were. They were pagans. They were, they were led astray to mute idols that have no power at all. So Paul reminds them, you know, hey, those of you who think so highly of your intellect and your knowledge and your wisdom, you were duped. You were duped pretty good because you were following dead wooden idols that have no power at all. So don't think too highly of your wisdom and your knowledge because it wasn't always that way. Now notice, notice how Paul says this. So he says, they were pagans, past tense, as if to say, you are not what, what you once were. So don't think and act like you did before you knew Christ. You are not what you once were, so don't think and act like you did before you knew Christ. And in verse 3 then, Paul corrects their thinking by pointing out that they have no grounds for boasting. Even in the most elemental, basic fundamentals of the faith, their very confession of Christ as Lord, they can't even boast in that. He's saying that you didn't even come to Christ because you were clever or wise. No, you needed the Holy Spirit to even get you to the door, to come to Christ in the first place. You can't even claim that. So how is it that you're claiming these abilities now? And getting all prideful and looking down on one another. You didn't do that. You didn't even bring yourself to faith in the first place. The Holy Spirit did. Now Paul's going to build on this foundation by adding three more reasons for them to check their pride at the door. And for the first time in this argument, Paul introduces the word gifts. It's in verse 4. Now this isn't clear. You might be thinking, well, he did it already in verse 1, Pastor Mike. You know, what's going on? Well, it's not clear in our English translation because in verse 1, when Paul begins with the words, now concerning spiritual gifts, it, it's not there in the Greek like it is later in verse 4. The word gift is not there. Uh, it's most, you know, in the most strict sense, this should be translated as spiritual things or spiritual persons. So what I think is happening here is that this is reflecting the fact that uh, Paul's first uh, address to their dysfunction in these matters, he's using their own verbiage. Remember they wrote a letter to him first? So I think it's possible that they were writing him first about spiritual things or spiritual persons. And so Paul begins that way. You know, now concerning spiritual persons or things. So beginning in verse 4, Paul, he's correcting their thinking about their so-called spiritual abilities by calling them gifts. They're gifts. And their value lies not in any particular kind of gift, but in the source of the giver. In the source of the giver. 
You know, if you went to on a trip to England and somehow had the the um, the privilege of meeting the Queen, and the Queen gave you a paperclip, just an ordinary paperclip. It's probably not even worth a nickel, but the Queen gave it to you. I'd imagine you'd hold on to that and maybe keep it and show it to your friends. You know, hey, the Queen gave me this paperclip. There's no value inherently in the paperclip. The value is in the one who gave it to you, right? Recently, I just heard uh, Tom Brady. I know, I'm sorry, I'm a New Englander. Tom Brady, uh, his, his first football, uh, his first touchdown pass football is going up for auction. And I have no idea what it's going to sell for. But even then, it's a football. You could buy one at Dick's Sporting Goods for 20 bucks, right? But the fact that Tom Brady threw a touchdown pass with it, not only a touchdown, but his first touchdown pass with it, that gives it value. It's in the person who, who threw it, who, who possessed that, right? And so their abilities, uh, their, their value, rather, is not to be found in the gift itself, but in the giver of the gift. The giver makes the gift valuable. And because the Spirit is the common giver, all the gifts are valuable. Every single one of them should be valued equally and not looked down upon because it's the same spirit that gave it. Not only should these abilities be seen as gifts, but Paul says that they are also empowered by the same source. It's the same spirit that enables all these abilities. And Paul is going to go on to apply this more broadly than to just their spiritual gifts. He also mentions service, and another way to think of service is, is your ministry. You know, what kind of ministry do you have? And lastly, he includes activities. And I think a, a, a good way to understand what that means is that it's, it's the spirit-empowered outcomes. It's the, it's the result or the effects of the spirit working in your life. It's God who empowers all of these things in everyone. Everyone. So it's God who empowers all these things, all, all your spiritual abilities, all your ministries you may be involved in, all the, all the results that may come from that, all are empowered by the same Spirit. And he says, everyone, this is all-inclusive. There are no Christians who are exempt from this. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit and should be respected for their abilities and ministry and, and the outcomes because it's the, the source uh, that empowers that is the same spirit. So these are gifts from a common giver and they are empowered by the same source. And Paul gives one more reason not to boast. He summarizes all three actually in verse 11. He says, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions or distributes or gives to each one individually as he wills. You see it at the end there? God empowers and apportions or gives, and he wills. He wills. Not because we are more worthy or better looking or more successful in business or have more degrees or more athletic or anything that has to do with ourselves, but according to his will. He saw fit to give the gifts that he wanted who he wanted to, 
because he willed. So all grounds for boasting, for pride, or despair are removed on the grounds that it is God the Spirit who gives, empowers, and wills our abilities for his service. Now let's talk about the purpose. Look at verse 7. He says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The first purpose of our gifts is to manifest or to show the Spirit. D.A. Carson wrote a book on 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, uh, and it's, it's, it's titled Showing the Spirit. Because that's, that's, one of, that's one of the purposes of spiritual gifts is to show the Spirit. This was Jesus' mission, to show or to manifest God to people that they may belong to him. And we see this in Jesus' prayer. We looked at this last week, not this in particular, but the prayer itself. Uh, he prayed this in, in John seventeen six. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. That was part of his mission, to make the living God known to people, that, that, that they may be drawn to him. And in this way, in the giving of the Holy Spirit to Jesus' followers, it's his means for empowering them to join him in his mission. We have the same mission as Jesus to make God known to others, to manifest him to others. Listen to Jesus' words in John fourteen twelve. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. And now your head's kind of flipping back. Greater works than Jesus? What? How is that even possible? Well, I think it's correct to understand that the works that we do are not greater in substance, but greater in scope. Not greater in substance, but greater in scope. Think of it this way. Instead of God making himself known exclusively through his Son, Jesus and his works, uh, the mission now continues through his people, the church, spread all over the globe doing his works, penetrating every corner of society and every uh, area, every layer of culture. His people are spread out with his spirit, doing his works all over the globe. How is it that we're able to do this? Jesus, he explains this a few verses later, verses 16 and 17. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That was foreshadowing to the day of Pentecost when the spirit would be poured out and indwell his people. So here, Jesus' promise, he, he promises the indwelling of the spirit to empower them for his mission. Now, let me say a few things about this list of gifts. We're not going to dwell on this, but I think it needs to be addressed. Uh, This is one of several lists of gifts that can be found in the New Testament. 
And no New Testament scholar believes that these lists are exhaustive. Even when you compare and contrast and kind of put a master list together of everything you can find in the New Testament, it's not exhaustive. Some of these gifts uh, are more spectacular. Others are more ordinary sounding. And it can be difficult to define what exactly some of these gifts even mean. For some of these, there are there are as many commentaries as there are opinions as to what some of these gifts mean. And we're not going to get into that this morning. Uh, some of you may be wondering at this point, well, what's my gift? What do I have to offer? There's numerous spiritual gift tests that have been popular over the years, but I, wanna, I want you to notice something. There's no tests given in the New Testament. There's no tools given for how to discern what your gifts are. Paul doesn't give any instruction for discovering what your gifts are in any of his letters. And so I think that it's possible that we may have overcomplicated or even over-mysticized the discovery of our spiritual gifts. And it's my opinion that, that your gift in some ways is, is evident. It should be evident. What are you good at? What are you passionate for? What are you burdened by? Asking these kinds of questions, I think, will naturally point you to what your gift is. And sometimes your gift may be more noticeable to others. So it's worth asking another brother or sister in Christ who knows you well, hey, what do you think my gift is? You know, they might be, oh, well, your gift is clearly, you know, and you might not have realized it before, but it's, uh, it, it's by interacting with the body that we find this out. But what I want you to see most of all here is that in this list, in these abilities, they reflect God's attributes. And they reflect the kinds of works that Jesus did. So it's in using our spirit-given, spirit-empowered abilities that we make him visible to the world by doing the kinds of works that Jesus did. Later in Paul's letter, in chapter 14, he presents a hypothetical scenario where an outsider enters into their worship service and observes them using their gifts in an orderly way, and the unbeliever falls on his face and worships God and declares God is among them because he observed uh, the, the, the gifts being used in, his, in their midst. God was made manifest to him. It was clear that God was among them. So this is the first purpose for spiritual gifts, to manifest or show or reveal God to others by doing the kind of works that Jesus did. The next purpose in verse 7 is that these gifts are to be used for the common good. The Corinthian Christians saw their gifts in a self-serving way as a means to draw attention to themselves. And these gifts should not lead to rivalry or jealousy or despair, but for the common good. The ultimate good is that others would come to put their trust in Jesus, that their lives would be transformed, that they'd get new hearts as Jesus is revealed in his people using their gifts, their spiritual gifts. And again, this was Paul's hypothetical that he gave in chapter 14. The other good is that the body of Christ is built up. The church is built. So it's appropriate. This is in our our sermon series on kingdom building. 
In verses 12 to 13, Paul introduces his, his classic body analogy to describe the church. Where we are one body with many members, and so it is with the church, he argues. But get this. This is, this is a profound reality here in verse 13. Paul says that in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now, the baptism Paul has in mind here is not the outward ordinance that we practice in the tub behind me. No, Paul is he's pointing to the inner, unseen baptism that takes place in our hearts that, that the ordinance of water baptism points to. It's what happened in our hearts when we first put our trust in Jesus to forgive our sins and we're born again. He's talking about our conversion to Christ. But see this. This is what I want you to see. Ready? Your conversion to Christ does more than unite you to Christ. It does more than give you the Holy Spirit. It also makes you part of Christ's body. It does more than unite you to Christ. It does more than just give you the Holy Spirit, both of which are amazing things but it also makes you part of Christ's body. The church universal, but the church local in particular. And Paul's point here is that as diverse parts of one body, we're not interdependent. Sorry, we're not independent. We are interdependent. No one has all the gifts. Each individual has something to contribute for its good. Look at how Paul articulates this in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, 15 and 16. He says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the picture of the body. I love this story. I heard Tim Keller tell this one time about uh, when he was first starting out in ministry at a church in Virginia. He was 24 years old. He's their new pastor. And early on in his ministry, he had uh, three different church members come to him and each person began by saying, do you know what's wrong with this church? There he is, 24-year-old pastor, probably right out of seminary, wet behind the ears. Tell me, what's wrong with our church? The first person says, you, know, you see that trailer park behind the church? There are spiritually lost and dying people there. And nobody's doing anything about it. The problem with this church is that no one cares about evangelism. No one cares that's the problem with our church. The next person meets with them. And they say, you see that trailer park behind the church? I'll tell you what's wrong with our church. There's a lot of elderly people there. People not like us. There's, many of them are very poor. They're outcasts. They're downtrodden. The problem with this church is that it doesn't care about the poor. It doesn't care about the downtrodden or the outcasts. Third person comes. 
and says, you know what's wrong with this church? See that trailer park behind the church? We talk a lot about ministering to them. But every time we talk about it, it's an organizational disaster. We don't communicate well. We can't get organized. We can't set goals. The problem is this this church is too disorganized. That's the problem with this church. Each of these people looking out that same window at that same trailer park with three different perspectives, three different problems. They had three different gifts. The one had a gift for outreach and evangelism. Another, the other had a gift for uh, compassion and mercy. The other had a gift for administration. They just needed to realize they needed to work together. And not everyone is going to have your gift. But let's work together in a common mission to reach our community. Church, as we desire and as we pray for revitalization, I hope the coin is dropping into the slot now. If we fail to understand that God has given you a unique gift of his choosing and put you in this church on purpose to use those gifts to magnify God for his glory and your joy, to not get this and to stay on the sidelines robs and stifles the church. God loves you. He sent his son Jesus to die for you, to pay for your sin, to make you part of his family, his body, the church. He's gifted you and has decided how he wants to use you in this particular time and place in history for his glory and for the building up of his body, the church. If you're in Christ, you have the spirit of God. He wants to use you no matter how insignificant you think you are. Fishkill Baptist Church, as we seek to build up the church and see the kingdom of God advance through our community, it's going to take all of us. It's going to take all of us using our gifts, whatever they are, toward a common mission, toward a common goal, a common mission, using our gifts together. And this is This is what I want to leave you with here. I think this is the final slide. God will build his church. This is the answer to that question. How how will God make himself known? God will make himself known. He will build his church through the diverse ministry of all his people, united in one spirit and for one mission. That's how he's going to do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for saving us and giving us the Holy Spirit, may we not neglect his ministry in our lives. Use us, Lord, to do your work through us in this community that others may see you and trust you for the forgiveness of their sins and to be reconciled to their creator. Help us to know that we are all needed and that no one's gift is too small or insignificant. Bring glory to your name through us, Lord, as we use our gifts together for your mission to save the lost and to build your church. Amen.